Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. And I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Uh, each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change, and we put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Neil Stevenson, who is a leading author of speculative fiction and speculative history. Uh, and throughout his writing, uh, technology plays a big role. He's the recipient of the Hugo and Prometheus Awards. He's perhaps best known for his novels Snow Crash and Cryptonomicon. His most recent book, Termination Shock, explores a scenario of the use of solar geoengineering in the not-too-distant future. For those listeners new to the idea, solar geoengineering is a set of proposed techniques to artificially cool the planet in order to reduce climate change. The leading proposal would replicate volcanic eruptions, natural cooling effect by spraying small particles into the upper atmosphere. And yeah, it was, it was great to have Neil on. Um, I mean, Jesse and I both both work academically on solar engineering, and I think it's really interesting to see very accomplished fiction writers take on this topic because I think science fiction and fiction in general can help us explore issues that are kind of to some extent out of reach of academia or cannot, are not well covered there. So I think it's it's really interesting to have him on and really interesting to see him getting involved. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Another layer that I think he added is that he is not uh, deep into climate change and environmental issues in the past. And, and, and that can actually be an asset by bringing some, some fresh eyes to, to the question of, of climate change and technology and solar geoengineering. Such a perspective can help uh, shake people up, perhaps uh, act as an antidote to the risk of groupthink. And um, overall, it was a great conversation, so we all enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Neil. Thanks for inviting me to join you. Well, hi, Neil. I guess uh, first off, could you explain to our audience what your new book is about? Of course. It's um, meant to be a, a, a techno thriller that is is on the subject of, uh, of climate change and geoengineering. And uh, uh, I have uh, tried to present what I think is a, a frank account of, of where we are and um, how things might look uh, in the coming decades and and some of the ways that people might react to that situation. So uh, uh, more specifically, what I'm depicting here is a situation in which an individual actor, a lone um, billionaire in Texas, uh, decides that he's going to unilaterally implement a, a solar geoengineering scheme uh, in other words, as, as people who listen to your podcast may know, uh, he's going to, uh, in this case, inject a layer of, uh, of sulfates into the stratosphere using a large gun uh, as a way of blunting um, the effects of, uh, of, of rising temperatures on the, the global climate. Um, so that is all uh, sort of a fait accompli at the beginning of the book. Although we don't see it, uh, 
until we're a few chapters in. Um, and so really what the book is about is, um, is the geopolitical knock-on effects. So what do people think of what this man has done? How does it affect different uh, regions, different countries in different ways? And how do different uh, people uh, respond uh, d- depending on how their own uh, national interests might be affected? It seems that you've written little on environmental issues um, over the course of your book. So I think, um, if I'm right, your second novel, Zodiac, has quite an environmental theme. So yes. what, what drew you to focusing on uh, climate change and solar engineering? Well, you're right that my second novel, uh, Zodiac, was uh, described as an eco-thriller, uh, but it didn't have anything really to do with climate change. It was about uh, toxic waste. The uh, uh, in this case, um, uh, I, I guess that I've had a growing uh, consciousness and awareness of the um, the severity of the problems that we're facing um, over the last uh, couple of decades. And uh, uh, almost ten years ago, I actually spent a while working with a little, uh, study group that was uh, looking at a, a form of uh, possible carbon capture. Um, and, um, uh, we sort of, uh, uh, moved away from that project when, uh, we began to run the numbers and, um, and started to understand just how much carbon has to be removed from the atmosphere in order to make any, uh, substantive difference, um, and realized that it, it, it was something that would have to be implemented on an incredibly enormous scale. So, that was kind of the uh, uh, when I first became uh, a little bit more conscious of these things, and um, I guess in uh, 2019, having uh, having delivered uh, my previous book, Fall or Dodge in Hell, and and looking around for what I would write next, it just suddenly became clear to me that um, uh, this is such a, a an enormously important issue. Um, that it seemed a bit odd that I hadn't tackled it yet. And um, I began to feel as though, um, given that uh, my niche uh, as a writer is um, supposed to be uh, writing approachable books on technical subjects, um, that it, it behooved me to take a crack at, uh, at, at climate change. Do you think it would have been... Uh, much harder to take on climate change if you weren't able to use the idea of solar geoengineering as a hook. I, I think it is a, a, a particularly good hook um, uh, because it, um, I mean, a, f- a few reasons. Uh, one is that um, by its nature, when you tell a solar geoengineering story, you're telling a story that involves a big technology project. I mean, in my case, it's a large gun system, but uh, people have also talked about using balloons. They've talked about using special airplanes. They've uh, even talked about space-based solar geoengineering where uh, objects are put into orbit to bounce back the sun's rays. But however you slice it, it's always a a big technology project, and, and big technology projects could just kind of lend themselves to uh, science fiction storytelling. It gives you uh, a kind of a structure to, to build a, a story around. Um, 
so that's part of it. And then um, uh, another part is the uh, the geopolitical angle, the fact that any solar geoengineering scheme is going to have uh, globally distributed effects. And so it, it immediately gets you into all kinds of possible plot ideas <clears throat> um, in that area. Um, and, and finally, it's a, um, I, I don't want to use the word hopeful or optimistic because I don't think that exactly captures it, but uh, it is a, uh, um, a way to talk about something other than we're all going to die. That is something that, that that also struck me. I, I one of the things that I've not that's kept me a bit away from from indulging too much in, in science fiction broadly defined as a kind of a dystopian bent to it. And I found that this book, and I recently read another one of your books to get a sense about where you're coming from. It's mixed. There's there's challenges. There's opportunities of technology that can address problems to some degree, but it's it's not smooth sailing. It's also not a utopian story either. Right. What what I've seen across co- common in your books is something you just mentioned is the, the technical aspect. Right. You have an attention to technical detail. It wasn't wasn't extremely deep in in this book. I also read read Seven Eves, and and that goes in a bit more depth. I'm curious. How do you go about background research, getting up to speed? Because as far as I could see on the solar geo side, uh, you had dotted your I's and crossed your T's. At a technical and physical level, it, it held together. Right. So um, I, I have a. I, I grew up in an academic family in an academic town that was um, geared towards um, science and engineering. Um, my my educational background is in, in, in technical subjects. Um, I, I didn't go terribly far. Uh, I, you know, I, I have a bachelor's degree and that's it, but I've, I've maintained or tried to maintain my, my contact with that world since then. Uh, and I'm a heavy user of um, Mathematica, uh, which I've found to be a really valuable kind of general tool uh, for doing kind of uh, somewhere beyond back of envelope calculations um um and so uh but 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 obviously not at the level of of serious uh engineering um but it's 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 kind of in the right uh goldilocks zone between those two extremes and enough uh to make me feel as though i'm not grossly violating the laws of physics and that uh the things i'm describing in the book uh, might actually uh be be achievable um, so in the case of, uh, of, um, of seven eaves, for example, there's a lot of, of uh, material in there having to do with orbital mechanics, um, which is, um, it's not a trivial subject, but it's, it's, a you know, the basic math of, of conic sections and orbits and so on has been very well understood for a long time. So, you know, it's a matter of, uh, of simply kind of transferring those equations into Mathematica and then running the numbers. In the case of uh, in the case of uh, of termination shock, uh, I had really uh, I had had aspirations early of of trying to get my head around some of the the climate models that are out there, which are very complicated, very powerful uh, models, um, but. Um, didn't really have the time to 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 plunge into that um so so there's nothing in the book that is based on actual you know an actual simulation of of the atmosphere but 
but what I did do was um, try to um, do some calculations on the performance of the the gun, the the big gun that the in the story constructs in West Texas to launch uh, shells full of sulfur into the air. Um, and so um, I, I can't vouch for it completely. I mean, nobody's reviewed the notebook that I created and for, for showstoppers, but I think that in general terms, the um, uh, the numbers pencil out on on that uh, system, and um, and and it, it yields a um, kind of the, the key number that that falls out of it is the the amount of, of uh, sulfur that gets delivered into the stratosphere per year while this thing is is running, and I think it's enough of a number to. To make a detectable difference, um, but not a big enough number to uh, to, to fully counteract the effects of uh, of, of uh, too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But but even that is has desirable and, and useful um, knock on effects in in the development of the plot because um, because that enables me then to say well. Okay, if he's built this thing and it works, but it's not big enough to completely uh, achieve his goal, then then that implies that he he's going to need to build other systems like it in other parts of the world. And you know, where would those be built? What political accommodations would he need to arrive at uh, in order to uh, to get uh, permission to build and operate these things? And how does that then uh, fall through into various geopolitical? Uh, uh, considerations that I can have some fun with at, as a writer. I've heard it said that um, when authors write about the future, there's a mix of things going on. Their predictions, some of them are things they think are likely, some are things they think should happen, and others are just there to, to make a good story. So I, I want to run through some of the aspects or some elements of the our, our potential climate future and sort of see where you fall on those. So I think you mentioned a little bit about very briefly about uh, carbon dioxide removal, but in terms of emissions cuts and carbon dioxide removal, I mean, what do you think are the prospects of us achieving the kind of rapid emissions cuts that would be necessary to limit warming to one and a half Celsius without solar engineering, I should say? So I, I don't follow this extremely closely. You know, my sense is that the cuts needed to, to limit warming to 1.5 degrees uh, seem extremely optimistic. And I'll, I'll be very pleasantly surprised if um, if those actually happen. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm all in favor of any efforts that get made in that area, but um, uh, it, it seems like like um, a lot of countries are going to have to make very big changes in their economies uh, in order to hit that. Is it possible to dramatize the kind of decades long energy transition that we're talking about. I mean, I, as you mentioned, your focus is on big technologies, and there are, there are big technologies in you know realizing emissions cuts and carbon dioxide removal, but they're of a different character from solar engineering. Yeah, it, it's true. It's true, and it's a uh, it's it's a, a fundamental uh, part of the, the the problem here in that um, you know yeah for a different kind of of big goal, like uh, let's build a Mars colony, um, <clears throat> that can be realized through some, some very charismatic and, and singular uh, technologies, you know, building giant rockets, launching them into space, and so on and so forth. And, and there's an element of human adventure tied in 
with that kind of, of project as well, where, you know, we get to see the individual stories of astronauts and what happens to them, uh, be it good or bad. And as you point out, uh, the, the problem with um, emission reduction and with um, carbon capture uh, is that um, these are uh, projects that are distributed uh, across the entire surface of the, the globe, and they, they take place in, in industries that uh, don't have that inherently charismatic quality to them. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a lot more difficult to kind of capture the imagination of a, of a reader or anybody who's not, you know, a, a process engineer, um, uh, in, in, uh, in undertaking those kinds of, of projects. And, and yet we have to, we have to do it. I guess on, on the other side of things, I, I believe there are quite a lot of stories about how the impacts of climate change could play out in the in the future. Um, so, what what worries you most about climate change? Well, I, I think the the big bad is is wet bulb events um, where um, uh, the the heat and the humidity in a particular area become so high that uh, the survival of unprotected human beings is physically impossible. And if, if events like that happen in heavily populated areas, uh, there could be mass fatality events. Um, and in, in his book, The Ministry for the Future, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson uh, opens with a very powerful and, and, uh, and well-wrought well uh, depiction of, of one such event. Um, uh, and so, uh, I mean, we've, we've, we've brushed up against this a, a few times, uh, already. And even in my hometown of Seattle, we had a, a heat bubble last summer where the temperature went up to something like 115 Fahrenheit for three days and then dropped, it dropped by 50 degrees Fahrenheit overnight. So, um, but, but in its wake, it left, uh, a couple of hundred um, fatalities. Um, so that's the big bad. Uh, but then there's, as you know, a, a whole list of other negative uh, effects of, of climate change. Um, maybe not as dramatic as that, but uh, but but potentially even more damaging uh, in kind of pervasive uh, ways uh, when you integrate them over the whole surface of the earth, uh, you know, decades of time. I guess in your story, sea level rise features quite prominently uh, as a concern. W was there a reason to focus on on sea level rise over these other risks? Yeah, a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that um, I didn't want to write. Um, it, it's 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 tempting to to write about huge, dramatic, horrific disasters, uh, and I, um, uh, I I didn't want to to play that card. Um, uh, and, um, um, but, but the, the, the key reason is that sea level rise, uh, can't be argued with. So, uh, you can, um, if there's a heat wave, um, people are always going to say that it's just a random anomaly. Well, we've always had heat waves. Uh, you know, there's no proof that this doesn't prove that there's global climate change. Um, and it's not such a big deal, uh, but um, uh, 
in the case of sea level rise, uh, you cannot argue with the fact that your house is full of water uh, or that there are streets in your town that are underwater that were not underwater uh, just a few years ago. Um, and it's worldwide, so it affects uh, every place that's that's along a coast. Um, so it affects a lot of people. It's easily visualized, um, and um, and it provides a um, uh, an economic motivation to do something. So the the actors that we see in kind of the opening uh, chapters of the book all have one thing in common, which is that they're they represent countries where uh, rising sea levels are post kind of an existential threat to them. Uh, and so they're all kind of, all, despite being otherwise very diverse uh, and, and, and distributed around the, the world, they're all brought together by a shared um, existential concern with this one uh, phenomenon. And uh, finally to solid engineering. So, in your story, um, stratospheric aerosol geoengineering is deployed unilaterally by a billionaire. Uh, do you think this is likely, or I think that some kind of uh, of, uh, of of solar geoengineering uh, is going to be implemented within the next couple of decades? Um, but I don't think it's going to be by a lone billionaire. So there's there's some places. Sometimes I make uh, decisions um, for storytelling purposes that may not be entirely realistic. Um, in, in, in this case, uh, it's simply more interesting and makes more for a more fun and readable story if, uh, if the person who does it is a person as opposed to a committee or a you know, coalition of, of countries or something like that. Um, and um, that's just kind of storytelling 101. Uh, and I have to, um, to sort of... Uh, bend over backwards a little bit to explain uh, how he's able to get away with it. Uh, in, in other words, why doesn't he just get shut down by uh, governmental authorities? Um, so there is a story to, to uh, explain that, but uh, it's a story that requires some effort on my part. So uh, I, I think that, um, that the emission reduction goals, which are laudable, uh, and which you know, I'm all in favor of, are are not going to happen fast enough to prevent um, you know very serious consequences of, of of climate change, and that there are going to be countries in in the world who um, who take a look at this situation, who run the numbers, and who simply conclude it's in their own national best interests to um, to take action and try to cool things. So. Uh, I, I would not be at all surprised to see it happen, but I don't think it'll be a lone um, wealthy individual. I think it'll be um, one or more countries. I guess one thing with um, sci-fi books, when they you know predict, well, not so predict is the right word, but they, they forecast the future in some way, there seems to be maybe two ways that they could take on a development. One is to foreground it and make it the, you know, a, a core part of the story. And another is to have it as a background element. Oh, by the way, we can fly to Mars or whatever it is. Uh, which do you think is more likely? Is this is, is the development of solar engineering likely to be a foreground issue or, a, or more of a background issue? That's a question that is more interesting to talk about than it is to, to have a, an answer to because it, it, could go, uh, it could go either way. And um, um, 
one the the initial uh, kind of my my knee jerk answer is that oh well it's such a big dramatic kind of thing that um, that it's got to be in the in the foreground and that's certainly what I, the decision I've made with um, with termination shock um, but um, uh, I did a, a book tour appearance uh, la- last week with uh, with David Keith at, at Harvard in which he uh, so. Raised the idea that um, maybe it's not that dramatic. Um, that um, <clears throat> that, that uh, if it were done right um, <clears throat> and and done in a, a, a controlled and uh, and measured way, uh, <clears throat> that could be uh, just sort of a, uh, a thing that exists in the background, as you say, uh, and and doesn't impress itself on on uh, in their day to day lives very much. I listened to that talk with David Keith. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I'm increasingly thinking personally, the more that I, I, I look at solar geoengineering, that it might be a bit more boring than a lot of people speculate. And an analogy that I increasingly draw upon to think about how it might fit into society, into planning, isn't nuclear weapons or whatnot. It's not these big centralized technologies, but it's monetary policy, which is incredibly boring but pervasive. Right, right, right. So it involves models. There's uncertainties. There's asymmetries of power between countries. There's not a centralized global decision maker. We have a the IMF sort of coordinates some policy and shares some information. Sometimes countries bicker about it, about, you know, the exchange rate or the interest rate or whatnot. But the forecast of a of a war over monetary policy is outlandish. And it's not on the front page news, the monetary policy. Well, sometimes it is during economic crisis, but usually it's it's page 24. I think solar yeah. geo, if it is used, might recede into this background of something that's normal. It's got its ups and downs and there's disagreements, but page 24. I would add uh, another uh, analogy, which is just um, oil uh, and mining uh, industry, which happened on it incredibly huge scale, but they happen far away from. And so uh, uh, even well-informed persons, you know, when they, when they go and visit a a major oil field or a a big mining operation are just gobsmacked by how big it is. Um, But, um, but if you don't, if you're not driving by it every day, you just, you, you're not even aware uh, of its existence. In your book, In Termination Shock, the language and perception of solar geoengineering is is highly important, perhaps even more important than the impacts. For example, at one point in time, the media coverage of solar geoengineering is described by one character as being much wrong, and the chattering classes were knocked off balance quite badly. That there's that there's multiple layers here. There's the physical, and then there's the linguistic and the perception. And in my experience, mm-hmm. People really do seem to have this deep affective reaction to solar geoengineering, especially those who are most involved in environmental issues and climate change, that it touches something deep. What might that mean for the ultimate politics of solar geoengineering? Is this going to play out in ways that cut across traditional political coalitions? Is this is there a serious, if not insurmountable, perception problem among those who are most active in in the relevant issues areas? How might this play out in the next decade or so? Agreed. Uh, uh, Some people have a 
a very visceral negative uh, reaction to it. Um, and, um, uh, the, um, uh, and, and it's easy to see why, uh, a lot of people, um, who are environmentally conscious, uh, I think have sort of a narrative in their heads that, um, there is this thing called the natural world, you know, that was pristine, um, and that everything that humans have, have done, uh, has, has tended to degrade it and make it worse. Um, and, um, and so this seems like an egregious example of that. Um, I think, I mean, uh, like more recent research has tended to suggest that, um, that that's been a really long time since there was a, a truly natural world unaffected by, by human activity. Um, and, um, in North America, for example, uh, when Europeans arrived, they tended to think of it as an unspoiled wilderness, but, you know, there's strong arguments to be made that, um, the, the people who got there before them had massacred all of the megafauna that had been living there when they arrived. And then, uh, turned uh, large chunks of the continent into basically parks or gardens that were managed by by wildfire and other techniques to to give them the the food that they wanted. It was it was all beautiful. It's how we get the Great Plains. It's how we get the Amazon rainforest. But none of it is 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 natural in any sense. Um, so um, um, <clears throat> a bit of a digression there. But po- point being that. Um, um, if that's your kind of grounding narrative uh, for our relationship to the to, to the world, um, then then messing with uh, the the weather uh, seems terrible. Um, even though we've already been messing with it for for hundreds of years. So, uh, and there's also kind of the you know, the precautionary principle, which has taken hold in the last few decades in the wake of, you know, disastrous things that we, that we did like uh, introduction of DDT and, and some of the early mishaps with nuclear power. So solar geoengineering cuts across all of those grains quite dramatically. All I would say is that um, it seems like the tide is beginning to turn at least for nuclear power. So a lot of, uh, of environmentalists, environmentalists with the kinds of people who formerly would, would hate, uh, and, and, uh, and do everything to oppose nuclear power are, are coming around to the view that, that we just have to do it, you know, as a way of, of reducing carbon <coughs> emissions. So, um, so it could be that as, as awareness spreads of the severity of the problems that we're facing uh, and, and, um, and the danger of, of possible mass fatality events, wars, uh, and so on, um, as a result of climate change, that, uh, that, that people will begin to, to come around to the view. As I was reading Termination Shock on the heels of, of taking in seven eaves, there were two significant features to both plots that stood out to me, something they had in common. I was looking for commonalities between them. They're really quite different books mm-hmm. uh, in subject matter and approach and scale and and tone. But two things jumped out to me, and I'd like to touch on each of these. The first of which is the balance of power between 
government and private individuals in that each story was to some degree driven by a very wealthy individual who pushed an issue in a way that government wasn't for whatever mm. reason the government wasn't acting. Yeah. And some might argue that something that's going on now, you, there's a number of, of ventures, particularly on the outer frontier of our planet and beyond where the extremely wealthy are, uh, one could say innovative, the other one could say uh, colonizing or something with a more critical tone. Is this new? Is this a trend? Or is this uh, more cyclical? Is this a, a rehash of the way that the fabulously wealthy of the Victorian era were pushing in ways that the government was unable or unwilling to do so? Well, I, I think it's a, a bit of both. We can always find historical examples of, of wealthy people who push for things. I, I would say even the most uh, powerful Victorians uh, were doing what they did in the context of, uh, of a larger kind of imperial governmental system. <clears throat> um, whereas um, what we're seeing now seems to involve greater uh, agency on the part of the, the billionaires and, and much less the, the part of, of institutions. So, uh, so uh, it's clearly the case that, um, that, for better or worse, we are now looking to billionaires to solve problems for us that uh, you know half a century ago we would have delegated to uh, to governments or the military or, or other big social uh, institutions, and um, and it's not hard to see why that's the case. We you know, so uh, the very wealthy people now are unbelievably wealthy. They're not just rich people, but the amount of, of money that they've got as a proportion of the total wealth that exists is, is incredibly high. Um, and, um, and at the same time, our institutions, uh, at least in um, kind of Western democracies, have become kind of weak and undermined um, and, um, and, and, and deadlocked uh, politically so that they, they're not able to really uh, act in a very effective way. Um, so you can kind of see this uh, like most strikingly right now, you can see it uh, with NASA trying to to uh, get the iteration loop of its planning to catch up with the speed at which SpaceX is making new things available. And um, so any plan that they come up with is sort of, by the time they've come up with it is obsolete um, because of new developments in private space launch, um, <clears throat> so um, uh, so when <clears throat> you know when someone gets inside of your 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 decision loop, uh, then um, you, you're 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 basically paramount. So I don't I don't necessarily advocate that state of affairs as the best way to organize a society, um, but it it's clearly kind of where we are right now. Um, and so, uh, you know, it just, uh, again, kind of putting on my storyteller hat, uh, that was the kind of the raw material that I, I had. The other, the other aspect that I found common in the two books was the role of, of modeling, right? So computer models, you mentioned this in the context, of course, of climate change and of solar geoengineering. What will the impacts be? Who will benefit? Who might be harmed? How might 
precipitation change, for example. In Seven Eves, there's, without revealing too much around the, the plot, there's some processes whose course is, is difficult to determine, but it starts to look to be very consequential for, for all of humanity. And I, I look around and I see climate modeling and I see, to circle back around, economic modeling and increasing role of algorithms and artificial intelligence. And is it the case that as humanity confronts more and more complex problems, you know, first we get our food and our shelter and we move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we create these enormously complex societies sustained by complex systems and intricate technologies, is this sort of reliance upon modeling, which is beyond the perception of the average voter into to some degree an inevitable or at least a likely stage of human development and what does this mean for democracy if we can't see what's under the hood if the voters can't see what's going on under the hood is there a, a technocratic magnet to to human development yeah it's a really uh, important and fundamental question um which um i i think a, a great many even well informed voters may may not be seeing um the um Certain phenomena are just so complicated uh, that um, it's beyond the, the power of individual humans to really uh, put the whole picture together and come up with a, an accurate understanding of, of what the future holds. Um, and a, a classic example that's, that's relatively simple uh, is simply is just the whole idea of exponential growth. And uh, we saw the difficulties that... Um, that, that people have in, in coming to grips with that during the early stages of the, the pandemic, where you, you plot the, the trend lines, um, then uh, somebody who, who understands basic mathematics will look at the, the, the curve and say, oh my God, this is exponential. Uh, you know, and what this means is that we're going to see 10,000 cases and then 100,000 and then a million very, very quickly. And someone who doesn't grasp what exponentials are uh, may just see kind of a, a line that's curving upward and not, not um, and these uh, you know, climate models and that sort of thing are far more complicated than merely uh, projecting an exponential curve. Uh, so um, um, the, uh, they're also um, understandable only by uh, a fairly small uh, number of of pretty elite uh, researchers uh, and, and scientists, um, which um, for me uh, it doesn't bother me personally, but it does bother a lot of people that uh, when they see that important decisions are being made, you know, based on things that can be understood by by a select few. So. So it is that that's where it turns into uh, a serious issue for uh, for democracies, particularly, and for uh, for, for for politics in general. Um, and and it's it's a it's a completely legit question to ask whether um, how how power and decision making authority should be should be apportioned um, in in situations like that. Um, and you know how can we as a society make uh, well-informed decisions uh, in these situations um, without ceasing to be democratic? I, I don't know the answer. I'm, yeah, I'm just. Yeah. 
it's a tough nut to crack. I struggle with with the same issues. I have a Democrat, lowercase d, Democrat on one shoulder and a technocrat on the other shoulder, both whispering yeah. at my ear at, at all times as, as, as I work through my thinking and, and, and both appeal. Diving into something a bit longer term, but but not entirely different. Are you familiar with David Grinspoon's book, uh, Earth and Human Hands? No. It's and, and, and he may present an idea that, that's more common, but this is a book that struck me and, and really left an imprint on me. He's an astrobiologist. So he's asking the question, how might we detect uh, intelligent life in space? Mm. And he, he, he says, well, you know, maybe oxygen isn't the signal we're looking for if we're really looking for intelligent life. What we're looking for is managed planets because yeah. environmental issues are, are a type of a filter. And they're going to destroy some percentage of intelligent species and others are going to work their way through. And that period, that filtering period is just in astrological time, just a blink of an eye. So it's very mm -hmm. unlikely that we'll be finding possible species that are anywhere near our stage of development. They're either worms or they've yeah. gone through this filter. Right. And, right. And, and this got me thinking a lot about solar geoengineering, which is also something that, that's in this book, is... Look, looking toward the long, longer term as we think about society confronting even more challenging problems such as climate change, arguably uh, one of the most difficult challenges that humanity has confronted. It may be the case that some type of planetary management is at least a temporary way out. And, and there's other way, there's other avenues of planetary management. You spoke of, of Native Americans burning the plains uh, as a type of landscape management. Is it at least logical or, or what's your reaction to the prospect of, of the course of increasingly complex and developed life on a planet eventually reaching the stage of planetary and Earth systems management? By the way, you, you, might, you might already know this, but um, the, 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 the track that Freeman Dyson was on when he came up with the idea of a Dyson sphere was uh, how could we detect presence of intelligent civilizations from a great distance and uh you know, given the equipment that we had for at the time for for taking astronomical observations and his idea was that the, the natural end state for a advanced civilization would be to enclose their whole star uh, a, a dyson sphere and at that point if you looked at that location, you wouldn't see anything that looked like a star, but you'd see an infrared source uh, radiating just infrared, nothing else in a particular band um, uh, that was compatible with, uh, with carbon-based life. And if you saw something like that, the only possible explanation would be that it was a star that had been surrounded by, completely surrounded by matter. So, um, uh, and I suppose with better um, astronomical equipment, we might be able to look at a planet, not just a star, but a planet around a, a, another star. And if we saw uh, fluctuations in albedo um, that were hard to explain naturally, we could conclude that this was a, a civilization that was, you know, solar geoengineering to manage its uh, its uh, its weather. But yeah, uh, the um, you know as I was saying before, I think the the uh, kind of social 
a, a difficult uh, kind of transformation that we would have to to pass through um, to uh, on a way to accepting uh, accepting the whole idea. It, it, it sort of does away for good with the idea of nature as a thing that that we can ever get back to. That is such a deeply embedded notion uh, in people's way of thinking um, that um, it's it, there will be a lot of grieving I, in letting that go. But um, if we stay on the course we're on with uh, the growth of population and so on, uh, then uh, I, I think that kind of management is going to be imposed one way or the other, either in a sort of top-down, controlled, organized way or just by individual uh, countries taking um, taking whatever action they think best suits their national security requirements. As we come towards wrapping this up, I thought I'd um, thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, what worries you and perhaps what gives you hope. So with climate change, we've talked quite a bit about the risks and, and, and what you're worried about. But how do you think those risks will compare to the other risks that we face as we go through the 21st century um, and maybe a little beyond? You know, like other other risks uh, at a comparable level of of disastrousness would be um, uh, smallpox and uh, or something comparable to smallpox and the possibility of nuclear war and um, and and you you know if, if another one would be if you kind of extrapolate <clears throat> the um, negative effects of, of social media into the future. And if those keep getting worse and we don't come up with a better immune system, we could end up in a, a world where uh, we've completely lost our grip on, on facts and, uh, and, and we're just being controlled by whoever the biggest asshole is. Um, so those would be you know, effects on a comparable scale to, uh, to, to climate change. Um, but they're all kind of unpredictable, um, whereas uh, the the effects of, of climate change seem pretty inevitable. It's been building, the, the CO2 level has been building up for a good couple of hundred years now. It's continuing to rise. The rate at which it's rising is go- still going up. Uh, it's going to keep going up for at least a couple of decades. Uh, when it stops going up, it's not going to go down until we physically remove the carbon so for sure, this is a, a problem that exists and that is not going away and that we're going to have to, to contend with. And we have to contend with it while also keeping an eye on some of those other less predictable risks that I'm... I was a little surprised that you didn't mention AI because it seems many thinkers of all, of all sorts of stripes are worried about AI for a couple of reasons, I guess. One might be sort of the economic, social disruption side of things, and the other is the some form of robot takeover. Or do these do these prospects worry you, or um, how do you feel about those kind of ideas? I would, at least for the time being, I would consider the social media to be that. I think essentially what we've done is handed our ability to perceive and understand reality over to AIs. Um, which are the algorithms that run social media sites and that determine what we do and don't see um, uh, in the way of news feeds and, and so on. And um, the um, um, and the, the difference from the scenario you're talking about is that um, 
is that a lot of times when, when people worry about AI, what they worry about is, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, sentient uh, AI that's got intentionality, that has motives and goals, and that uh, that tries to um, to achieve those goals kind of in the way that a human actor would. Um, but um, that's not necessarily the case. And in the case of uh, of social media, what we've got is AIs that don't really have a big goal or big motive other than to increase engagement and get more clicks. And it just happens that a, a byproduct of them achieving that goal or pursuing that goal is the, the destruction of our you know, civil society. So if, if AI is the, is the bad actor we need to worry about, I don't think it's going to be some kind of super brain that takes over, but it's going to be uh, uh, inflicting casualties on, uh, on the human race as a kind of uh, unintended byproduct of some other thing that it's programmed to do. Another technological strand that some worry about, uh, and I'm not sure how much you've written about this, is uh, biotechnology. Uh, it was, I think it was quite popular in sci-fi imaginings in the 90s and 2000s. And in recent, the recent decade or so, it really is, the capabilities have really exploded. What do you feel about the developments there? I mean, there's, there, there's, it's, it's not hard to envision all, all kinds of ways that it could, could go wrong. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the bad, the big bad in that scenario is a, um, a, a disease that spreads like COVID, but that is has worse, if, even worse effects. So, I mentioned smallpox earlier. Um, you know, uh, a possible bad outcome of biotechnology is that somebody synthesizes that it's loose. So, um, um, so so maybe it's that, and maybe it's some other some other thing that's similarly contagious and, uh, and virulent and, and deadly. But I mean, for sure, that is a, uh, a, a thing to, to, to worry about. Uh, I, I just think it's more likely to be a new variant of something we already know about than it, it's, it's easier to just synthesize something we already know about than to try to engineer completely uh, strain from the ground up. Okay, so so those are all um, some quite a dystopic few strands there. Uh, what are some yeah. utopic strands that you can see in the future? What what gives you hope? I think that um, I'm I'm beginning to see uh, technically sophisticated people turning their attention to um, carbon capture, and I think that carbon capture um, is a a somewhat attractive. Um, project for um for nerds because it is it's definitely got some challenges it's not easy um so uh and nerds like that that kind of thing um it would have to be implemented on an incredibly enormous scale so it's got a, a, there's a certain kind of uh of interest value created just in the idea of making something that's that big um and um and it's a uh, there's absolutely no question that it's a positive good. Um, so one can argue with geoengineering, solar geoengineering, and say, oh well, we shouldn't be shouldn't be messing with the, the climate that way. And so, okay, maybe there's uh, you know uh, credible arguments to be made um, uh, along those lines. But 
um, the removal of excess carbon dioxide or carbon from the, the, the atmosphere um, is absolutely a good thing to do. It's us undoing some something we shouldn't have ever done in the, in the first place. Um, and so um, I'm hoping that, um, that that becomes sufficiently interesting uh, to, um, to, to people who know how to get things done that people begin to sort of turn their careers toward um, and, and, and making it their, their life's work. Um, and I think that if it does begin to, to take hold, which won't happen for a few decades, but that if it does, it'll, it'll change our, our overall way of thinking uh, about everything and um, maybe get us out from under the, the cloud of, of general dystopic and dread that um, is pervasive now. So I, I guess then kind of related to that, do you think the, the 22nd century looks brighter than the 21st century? If we get there, um, I, I do think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just we're we're right now having to deal with um, a kind of a uh, a double whammy in the form of um, both uh, serious climate change issues combined with the you know the kind of breakdown of exactly the institutions and mindset that we need in order to tackle those those problems. Um, so that's a pretty tough set of, of challenges. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I prefer to take the optimistic view that we'll figure out a way to, um, to muddle through and, um, and, and turn the corner at some point. In the- Our guest today has been science fiction and speculative fiction author Neil Stevenson. His latest book, which we highly recommend, is, is Termination Shock. Neil, thanks for joining us on Challenging Climate. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Challenging Climate. Our music is by Peter Dalchuk, and our website is challengingclimate.org, where you can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links and references. If you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it on social media to help us grow this podcast.